Ora. I'm Laura Clark, the British High Commissioner to New Zealand. Welcome to another episode of Tea with the High Commission, the British High Commission's podcast, where we interview a range of interesting people talking about anything and everything, and in the process discover the great connections between the UK and New Zealand. Kia ora koutou. Our guest today on Tea with the British High Commission is Professor Carol Mundell, who was appointed the first female Chief Science Advisor at the UK's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office in October 2018, and was recently appointed the first Chief Inter- International Science Envoy. In addition to her work at the FCDO, she is Professor of Extragalactic Astronomy, Head of Astrophysics at the University of Bath, and a Fellow of the Institute of Physics. Carol is a world-leading scientist and frequent guest speaker at international conferences, all of course right now via Zoom or Teams, and she sits on several strategic advisory panels for the UK and international groups, is a committed science communicator, and is an advocate for diversity in science. So that makes her the perfect guest to have on our podcast as we mark International Women's Day. Now, I was lucky enough to host Professor Mundell in a webinar late last year alongside New Zealand's Chief Science Advisor to the Prime Minister, Professor Juliet Gerrard. Now, you can find a link to that recording of the Professors in Conversation webinar in this podcast description, or you can search for it on the British High Commission Wellington's YouTube channel. So I'm delighted to have Carol back uh, to learn more about her work and her role and to focus in particular on diversity and women in science. So, no my hairamai, welcome Carol, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Laura. It's lovely to be here to talk to you again today. If I can start with learning a bit more about your role, you're a professor in extragalactic astronomy, which is probably about the most impressive job title in the world or even galaxy. But can you talk uh, to us um, more mere mortals about what exactly that is and how you came to study something quite so fascinating? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I sometimes joke that it means I'm professor of everything in the entire universe outside of our own Milky Way galaxy. And that's really what extragalactic means. It means beyond our own Milky Way galaxy. But actually, my speciality is in studying black holes and their environments and the impact that they have on their environments. So I study some of the most energetic and powerful processes in physics in the universe. And in particular, I'm an observational astronomer. So I use and develop technology for ground and space-based telescopes. And I capture lights from a Across the electromagnetic spectrum that travels for millions of millions of light years across the universe um, from these distant black hole driven systems to reach our telescopes on Earth. And then I use the information that is encoded in that light to try to diagnose the physics of these exotic objects at the edge of the distant universe. Wow, that's extraordinary. <laughs> that's extraordinary. And from the Milky Way, uh, to foreign policy, because you, of course, wear two hats, your academic hat and then your, your role at the, at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. So can you tell us about how you came to be the Chief Science Advisor and then latterly Chief International Science Envoy for the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office and, of course, for the UK? Yeah, it was certainly a really interesting journey in my career. So I'm a a research scientist and as you described, a professor. I was head of physics at the University of Bath when I was approached and invited to apply for the chief scientific advisor role at the Foreign Office. And I've always worked internationally. Astrophysics and science generally is done internationally and isn't done within one particular national border. And so I guess, you know, without realising it, I've always been an international science diplomat and really enjoyed that kind of career. 
and also an educator, so an educator of students, um, and also outreach, so you know, speaking to the public about these exciting ideas in science to encourage young children to, to have a, a career in science. Sometimes you talk about the biggest ideas in the universe, and children and all people actually are interested in the, these big ideas. And of course, you know, young people come into science, they study computing, physics, maths, and they can go out and do anything with their careers in the world. And so when I was approached about the Foreign Office role, it was a role that I didn't know much about. So I knew about the government chief scientific advisor role, our current GCSA is Sir Patrick Valance. So he's very well known to, to many viewers who have been watching the, uh, the science advice mechanism, particularly through the global pandemic. And I'd worked with previous government chief scientific advisors when I was an early stage career researcher. And also in my career, I've sat on a number of international advisory bodies for science and science policy. And when I was approached to, to join the Foreign Office, I thought well, this is a really exciting opportunity to take my career to a new level, but also to project the sort of excellence of the UK science base internationally and to truly, really, truly put that science base into the heart of foreign policy and to help to provide the best evidence base that we can for our policymakers. And so I joined the Foreign Office and I've been learning to be um, a proper science diplomat now, which has been fantastic. I had some amazing journeys um, before we went into our sort of current COVID pandemic lockdown and traveled to see our, our science and innovation network uh, teams. So these are science attaches, about 100 of them covering over 50 countries in the world and meeting incredible ambassadors like yourself and meeting stakeholders in country and really just helping to project our UK excellence and build new stakeholder relationships and new friendships um, to, to, grow, to grow our international collaboration. So it's been a fantastic journey. And then, as you say, in January of this year, I took on the exciting new role of the first international science envoy, I believe, for, for Whitehall, uh, first ever, which do really just takes the, the CSA role to a new level. And so we've merged the Foreign and Commonwealth Office with the Department for International Development. So we now have a really strong science base. Professor Charlotte Watts is the new Chief Scientific Advisor for our new department, and she's focusing very much on providing that evidence base across our department to make sure we have the best possible science evidence base. And my role is very externally facing, so making sure we project our excellence internationally, build new collaborations, and also protect um, our scientists and our science base so that we can be a real force for good in the world. That's fascinating. And I, I always think that science diplomacy and the sort of science and innovation cooperation plank of any bilateral relationship is an incredibly important one and also quite important for weathering storms because sometimes difficult things happen in a bilateral relationship or in you know, international diplomacy between countries and you're sort of arguing about something else. Um, but science and innovation is kind of slightly more immune from those sort of political waves and can ensure that a relationship endures. And, um, and, it's, and it's also something that's very clear where you're working together on, on global goods. So it's, a, it's an incredibly important part of diplomacy and international relationships, I think, but one that is perhaps not always that well understood. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's very much about trust. Um, we have big global challenges to tackle and we have to work together. And I think, you know, scientists, it takes us a long time to build a relationship with another scientific colleague. And that's a really strong bond when you find somebody that you trust with your ideas. You can test an idea out and a good critical friend will say, hmm, maybe not. Let's try and think about that problem in a different way. And when you start to take those research projects forward, as you say, they can weather those bigger political storms and, you know, the, the sort of 
instabilities we see in the world because actually once you're working on solving a really exciting problem together to a certain extent everything else goes out the window you think yeah let's let's tackle this problem and let's work on it together and when you make progress it's a great triumph it's not to say that as scientists we don't compete ruthlessly <laughs> we do we and that's the point of good science that we compete in a scientific way to get the best possible answer for really unsolved questions at the frontiers of knowledge so yeah a really good way to to keep those friendships going through difficult times mm. And it's also, of course, not to say that science and science cooperation is immune from geopolitics and all those pressures, but it is still, it's still a really strong, strong area of collaboration. That's right, yeah. So, so as, as our International Science Envoy, what's the main focus of your work right now? And, and in particular, I suppose, because COVID is still this all-consuming thing, how does your work relate to our the UK's response to COVID, but also our work on international cooperation on the response to COVID. Yeah, so it's really interesting to have this role right now. So that my past year as CSA, of course, has been very, very much dominated with providing science advice. I'm a participant in the science advisory group in emergencies chaired by Sir Patrick Valance and Professor Chris Whitty. And so for, for a whole year now, that's been a very big piece of my work and that of my team. And I think as we've been going through that journey and really looking to see the incredible work that our scientists have been doing, but also how we've been developing the science evidence to provide the policy advice at pace, at really at the frontiers of knowledge, that development of that knowledge and the way we do that, the way we set our systems up, that's been a real, really interesting learning piece. You can see things like, you know, our sort of world leading genomics testing system. Um, so that's something that I've been helping to support other countries to develop, um, supporting our ambassadors around the world. And that's really a, a core piece of my CA, chief scientific advisor role moving into the envoy role is actually helping other governments think about how to have that science advice mechanism, particularly at really difficult times when the answers are not clear, when we don't know, yes, this is the right thing to do and you really need to look at complex data. So helping other governments to think about their science advice mechanism um, and helping them to access the best of our research in the UK everything from genomics testing through to vaccines um, and you know from logistics right from the the frontiers of science right through to how you deliver that to to a patient um, and so all of that work is quite complex lots of countries asking for support and help um, and really understanding how we're doing what we're doing in the UK what's working what we're learning to do better and really doing that in a, an internationally collaborative way because ultimately this is not going to be the only pandemic that we experience but it has to be the last that we experience this negative this huge catastrophic impact that we've seen around the world we really have to learn from this and do better in the future as a, as a global community and i'm of course speaking from wellington new zealand where we're extraordinarily fortunate here and new zealand is rightly very proud of its of its response to covid can you talk a little bit about the uk new zealand's collaboration in the science space yeah, absolutely. That collaboration has been very strong. And of course, you know, congratulations on, on your response to this crisis. But I think we also see how very hard it is to maintain that. And I know that it's meticulous attention to detail from your science and, and health teams and um, your border controls. All of those require ongoing hard work. But our teams have been working together, particularly to understand virus transmission mechanisms. So one of the things that we've been working very closely with you on, obviously, when you do have a positive case and you do have a small amount of 
transmission, you've then got almost a perfect laboratory to understand how the virus is transmitted. Once you've got lots of community spread, you've got lots of different routes for that, and it becomes much harder to disentangle the kind of environmental effects or the kind of dynamics or the super spreading events. And then also, of course, as we start to roll out vaccines, we've been working very closely with New Zealand, uh, particularly on making vaccines available to low and middle income countries who have more vulnerable health systems and making sure equitable access to vaccines globally is a really strong political message um, that is, is delivered as we, as we start to roll out all of the different vaccine options that we have available. And doing that through the various international mechanisms, the Global Vaccine Alliance and COVAX, uh, the facility for, for vulnerable countries to be able to, to have access to vaccines. Carol, so we're, we're releasing this podcast, as you know, to um, mark International Women's Day. And each year um, we, we run a Be British High Commissioner for a Day competition, which is a really fun way of, you know, giving people a bit of an insight into life as a high commissioner or ambassador. And it's all about role modelling and, and thinking about different opportunities. For people to apply, they had to submit a one minute video um, setting out their thoughts on how we can learn from the COVID-19 pandemic to build a society that is more gender equal. So can I put that question to you? What do you think? Because I think there are lots of risks of COVID in terms of exacerbating inequalities across many, many areas. So how do you think we can learn from it to build a society that is actually more gender equal? Yeah, absolutely. And do I have to do it in a minute? Because that's a, that's a hugely difficult challenge and well done to the, uh, the, the applicants. <laughs> I think the privilege of being the international science envoy is you can do it in your own time. <laughs> I can do it in a minute and a half. Hats off to them if they managed it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the virus, of course, has shone a very harsh light on inequity and inequality in all of our societies in whatever shape and form that comes. And I think for me, the inspiring thing has not only been how science has really led um, you know, the, the, the way we've got to be able to tackle this, vaccine, this virus. But I think also the incredible leading women that have been quietly working away in the background. And sometimes you tend to see, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe our, our, our male leaders who are there front of camera. But actually, you know, from all the way from Professor Sarah Gilbert in Oxford, who's pioneered um, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, all the way through to our inspiring women leaders. You know, I think we can see women throughout really delivering to the solution of this pandemic. And that's really inspiring for me. I think in terms of recovering from it and looking at inequality in our societies, we absolutely have to transform. We have to use this as an opportunity to say we will do things differently. Harness the best of what we've done. I mean, we're currently in lockdown in the UK, so there's lots of levelling up, actually, um, that we can do both in terms of housing, in terms of our energy production, right through to our ability to tackle climate change, which, of course, is going to dwarf the pandemic in terms of the catastrophic impact if we don't tackle that, but also looking at how inequity happens maybe in families. And so we know some data that women are picking up the child caring, the homeschooling responsibilities, professional women are actually seeing their careers impacted. So we can then look in the workplace and say, what is it that enables our women to deliver at times of challenge? And how do we make that more equitable across our societies, wherever we live? And then right down through to regions of the world where we don't have the opportunity 
opportunity to have a Skype chat or a Zoom call where we don't see digital equality, where women and girls are, you know, at the, the hand of violence or they're in war zones and they're disproportionately impacted by gender-based violence. So right through to the most extreme circumstances, this is an opportunity to do better, to say actually we need to stop this inherent inequity mm -hmm. and we need to lift people up and look at a very different way of building a, building a new world. And from that will come really strong economic recovery. And we put health and economy at the heart of what we do, not either or, but they have to be intimately linked. And we educate and we lift up our people. My, I personally think a value-based recovery um, is going to be the best way to drive, drive improvement and to avoid future pandemics. And there's something of value-based recovery, but also and using the opportunity to think afresh about how we value things, not just what is the bottom line, you know, what is the cheapest, but what, what value do we put on equality? What value do we put on a sustainable economy and, and our environment? And all those things are critical as we see yeah. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, the three things that we have of value are natural resources, human labor and human ideas. Mm. You know, that's what everything boils down to. We have this planet. It's a beautiful planet. And if you listen to Apollo mission astronauts, when they flew away to the moon and they looked back at our planet, they could see how very fragile it looked. Beautiful blue green planet with a very thin atmosphere that protects us from all of that hostile radiation and particles that stream from the sun. And that, that's a hostile universe out there so this is a beautiful planet we should value it and in fact just this week we saw the incredible lander perseverance landing on mars and those beautiful photographs coming back you know that's not a great place to live right now so we should protect this planet while we've got it in my opinion absolutely and value what we have and what we need absolutely. to protect so you've been very active on on diversity and science and because this is international women's day i'm going to focus in on gender diversity and we seem to still really be struggling in terms of getting enough women and girls into um, academia and science roles you know into studying it but also then practicing and that in turn you might say oh well that's not that much of a big deal they might be more interested in other areas haha -ha. um, but actually it has massive implications for how we develop science and therefore for our societies so if you think about the development of AI if only 25% of people developing AI are women that has implications for how it's developed. So how do you think we can break down those barriers? And can you talk a bit more about the work that you've done in this space? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think AI is a brilliant example there, that if we do not have diverse teams, then we will come up with solutions that only work for a minority of society and that's incredibly dangerous because AI is really complicated and we've seen examples of AI learning our inherent gender biases and you know you you, tra you have training sets and actually AI picking up messages from the internet and thinking ah oh, this is the training set that I need to use in order to develop you know the AI as I go forward and so it's really important we have that diversity. Um, you're right that it's, it's remained a challenge and particularly in the physical sciences and engineering to attract young women and to retain them. So there's the whole pipeline that we have to address. Obviously, we struggle with having enough role models. If you can't see someone who looks like you, then how can you imagine a path for yourself in that kind of career? So I think lifting up and making our existing role models visible and recognizing their excellence is really important. So this kind of interview with you today is brilliant and there'll be lots of things happening to celebrate International Women's Day, which I think are really important. But of course, we shouldn't just do that one day a year. We should be doing that all year round. I think we also need to have a conversation about what kinds of people can do science 
all kinds of people can do science. There's not just one type of person. And there is a, an old fashioned trope, which I, I still hear being used, particularly for physics, that girls don't want to do physics or girls aren't good at physics. And of course, that's complete rubbish. Um, it's not the preserve of one kind of person to do something like physics. And I think something else I've thought about as well, that when particularly in the UK, we have this kind of inherent myth that science or maths or physics is hard. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it's actually only certain special people that can do it and I don't believe that's true I don't think it's any harder than anything else it's not harder than you know learning a language or learning a musical instrument when you find the spark and you love it you can do it if you have good teachers maths is the language of physics so actually if you learn good maths you can do physics if you're unable to learn maths because you've met a barrier then how will you unlock the door to do physics it doesn't mean that you can't do it so I think we need to look much more broadly about how we educate how we inspire and then how we continue to support all sorts of different people coming into science and ultimately we have to make science a more welcoming profession because sometimes I have seen toxic workplace cultures will drive out the talent and it will always be minorities who are disproportionately affected by toxic workplace cultures so again we have to really be honest have a frank conversation about that and fix that part of the pipeline too and and try and demystify it and make it seem much more accessible for people and yeah, yeah and, and you're right it's also about our cultural attitudes I've never quite recovered from um, a male relative asking me when I was about seven um, are you any good at maths, Laura? No, I don't suppose you are. And before I've had had, had even chance to con contemplate the question, I had the answer. Um, so it's and actually the effect of that, Laura, is called stereotype threat. That's been studied by scientists. And actually, if you take you know, young women and girls who have no doubt that they're brilliant at maths and you immediately ask them or tell them that they're not, suddenly there's a big drop in their grade point average. So it's, it's a well-known psychological effect. And again, of course, you're brilliant at maths. Everybody's brilliant at maths. We just need to love it and go ahead and do it. And also what you call maths, you know, learning your times tables, that very mechanistic, boring stuff that you might think, I'm not very good at that. I'm not very interested in it but there's all sorts of creative ways of doing things like maths that I think we're starting to get into our education system and connect with mathematicians who think you know creative thoughts it can be an incredibly creative subject so I think for me creativity and that spark of creativity sits at the heart of doing science we all have it in us. Now you've talked about role models um, which who are of course incredibly important and you will be a very important role model to lots of people um, around the world can you talk about who your most influential role model was? I think I would have to say, yeah, I'd have to say my father, actually. So he was a biomedical scientist. I, I, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he had an insatiable curiosity for everything in the world, whether that was history or politics or science. And I think what he did for me and my younger brother was encourage us to ask questions. And he always, he was very confident. He would always say, you know, if you're in class and you don't understand something, put your hand up and ask a question. And if you feel worried and nervous about doing that, imagine how everybody else is feeling. So if you have the courage to put your hand up, ask the question, everybody else in the room will go, oh, thank goodness, I was wondering that too. And so keeping that spark of curiosity lit and that love of lifelong learning, he didn't go to university. So I was the first child in my family to go to university, but he always knew that education was incredibly important. And he used to say, you know, learn your whole life and stay in education as long as you can. And so I'm quite proud to say I kind of still have stayed in education <laughs> as an educator now. But I look now around me and I think it's particularly 
particularly you know the young scientists coming up and the young women who are fighting those barriers that we've talked about who are saying no actually there should be a place for me in science I love it and I want to do it so I learn a lot from that reverse mentoring and I've got lots of you know role models of, of junior scientists and young women who are coming up and helping me think differently and challenge my own biases and stereotypes and showing me what's possible actually so I find that also really really inspiring. Thank you. No, so I think we should start bringing this to an end, although I feel like we could keep talking forever. But I've got a couple of sort of more um, of different questions for the end. The first is, is, we talked about Mars, but if you could visit any planet, which would it be and why? Oh, gosh, this I think is a really hard question, but I think it has to be Pluto. Um, so I'd have to wrap up warm. Uh, Pluto, we used to think, was just this sort of cold, boring rock at the edge of the solar system. And a phenomenal mission called New Horizons flew out all the way to Pluto. And the photographs that were sent back were absolutely incredible. So we see volcanoes, we see a ge geologically active planet. And there's much debate in the scientific community. So planetary scientists call Pluto a planet. Astronomers in the International Astronomy Union designated it as not a planet, a dwarf planet, and demoted its status some years ago. So I'm not going to get into that controversy and tell you which one I think, but it is an active debate. So I think if I had enough winter woolies to wear and enough time to fly out to Pluto, I'd love to go and see that planet, you know, with my own eyes. Not, not a very nice place probably to go on holiday and live for a long time, but it would be great to go and just be zapped out uh, to, to, to go and visit Pluto. For a short, sharp visit. We've talked before we started about how you've essentially been working from home for almost a year. Um, and and we, we do find that COVID is all dominant in lots of ways. So can you tell me what, where do you find the optimism? What, what, where do you get your optimism for that things are gonna get better? So my optimism really through this pandemic, I think, has come from the incredible kindness and humanity that I found in friends and colleagues and strangers around the world. I think we are living at a very special time in terms of technology. I mean, the conversation we're having, we're having it from opposite sides of the world, which is incredible in real time. So I've connected with people that I would never have been able to connect with before and also that I wouldn't have been able to go and visit in person. And I think, you know, that the heart of all of this is the incredible work that our scientists have been doing you know relentlessly trying to find a solution and there's no question that they ever would just say oh it's probably too hard I'll just not bother they are continuing to push the boundaries of the frontier of knowledge so I think if they can do that morning noon and night as the world wait waits and watches because you know the spotlight is on them and you know we could never have imagined a year ago that we would have one vaccine candidate let alone a whole suite of them just 12 months later so that for me I think you know if they can continue to do that then I've got nothing to complain about so really really inspiring and if we can do that we can we can solve bigger global challenges we can choose to do that I think in my opinion. Absolutely. And that's, and I think that's my hope as well, is that we've been following the science and putting science front and centre of this crisis, but we need to replicate that in our response, particularly to climate change, but to other, other um, challenges facing yeah. the world. Um, and very finally, how do you relax and switch off from everything? So before lockdown, um, I was I, I quite enjoyed taking up a martial arts with my, my sons. Yeah, so I took up Taekwondo a few years ago. So they're both black belts and they persuaded me to come to class. Um, I was really nervous. I was unfit and I really, really enjoyed it. So I did do some competitions. And in my novice ladies category, I became the um, British champion in 2017. Wow. So I really miss that because that's something mental. I can't think of anything other than my sequences and my moves when 
I'm doing Taekwondo. So I haven't been able to do that for a little while. So I miss that. So our alternative right now is nice walks where we can and board games. So just slowing life down, having time with family and actually just enjoying reading really slow things that deep thinking things and things that are not to do with my work and that are not fast paced, just taking time to enjoy nature, the, the birds in the garden. Gosh, you know, to actually have the time to sit over breakfast and look out and think, hmm, then I'm going to go my Zoom call. I don't actually have to get in the car or go on a train anywhere. So that's also been really nice to just take that family time. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Carol. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And, and thank you for joining us in your evening. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the evening. Thanks thank so, you much. so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review as it helps others find us. And remember, you can subscribe to us by searching for Tea with the High Commission on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you. Kakiti Anou.